Well, kids, did you, did you hear the buzzword there? I think Ralph did a pretty good job flagging it for us. It's the word hand. Could you hear that? Hand. Hand. We, we see that nine times in this short little chapter. Saul's hand, the priest's hand, hand again and again. And so we're going to be talking about that today in God's hands. But let me start by saying this. There's certain concepts in the Bible, certain images that we are given about God that are a bit tricky to reconcile. You with me? There's certain descriptions of God and yet other passages that seem to almost contradict those descriptions. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like ours. If you've been catechized in the Westminster Shore Catechism, what is God? God is a spirit. He does not have a body like ours. That said, being a spirit, he does not have physical hands. Yet the scriptures often use the expression, God's hand. Isaiah tells us this, that God used his hand to fashion and create the whole world. Isaiah 48, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. This is a tremendous display of God's hand in creation. God also says this in Isaiah 45. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Some of you like to go camping, particularly when the weather warms up. Have you ever looked up into the night sky? You ever seen all the beautiful stars? Just blows your mind, right? And God claims, listen, God says, He claims, I put every one of those in place. He made it by His hand. He made all planets, all galaxies. Simultaneously, when the Bible talks about God's physicality, you with me? This is also the language that it uses. Paul writes in the very beginning of 1 Timothy, he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then when he wraps up the letter to Timothy, he says this, makes this statement. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can say. It's not just Paul who talks like this. Let's take the words of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. God is spirit. You hear that? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why the apostle John says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God. All right, then if God is a spirit, if he does not literally have a hand, 
Why does the Bible seem to say otherwise? Because the Lord wants us to know him as personal. He is a personal God who acts in space and time history. Sure, he does not have literal hands, yet his hands are often mentioned in the scriptures. His hands are mentioned as a way to describe his active, saving work in the world. He is the God who is there. Now, why do I bring all this up? Why why do I bother talking about physical, spiritual, hands, all that stuff? Well, what we'll see in chapter 23 is a rejected king who's incessant upon getting his hands on the anointed king. And yet every time, the anointed king seems to slip right through his fingers, so to speak. Now, is that just good luck? Is that a coincidence? Or could there be another hand, albeit an invisible hand, behind all of this, directing, governing all of this? Could it be God's hand? That's what I want us to observe today. First, we're going to look at a guiding hand. Next, a helping hand. And lastly, a providential hand. So as we look at chapter 23 set before us, a guiding hand, a helping hand, and a providential hand. We need to ask the Lord right now to wake us up because by nature we are selfish and apathetic. I've got other nice things to say as well, but by nature we would not be tuned in unless the Spirit of God so works in our hearts. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit does that for us now as we open up the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we come to you as, as selfish, hedonistic, scared people who are more distracted with things that pass, more distracted with our tummies rumbling, more distracted with a nice day and wanting to go enjoy it. Lord, we, we enjoy your creation and yet shun you. Forgive us, Lord. We pray now that you, the creator, as you have made the entire world, Lord, would you create spiritual life? By your spirit, would you Remind us, open our eyes of why we are here, why we exist. It's to know you, to delight in you. So would you guide us, help us in your providence, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So as we observed last week, um, David is, well, he's a fugitive, right? And, And what is he doing? He's... He's hiding behind enemy lines. He's hiding in caves. He's hiding in forests. He's just playing a bit of cat and mouse with King Saul. But soon, but soon after we see David on the run, the camera shifts from David the king to another king in chapter 22. Yet this king isn't, he's not hiding. He's wide out in the open. In fact, he's 
He's there with in typical fashion, his spear in hand, sitting under a tree, standing under a tree. He's got his spear, which has become the insignia of his office. So let's, let's look at chapter 22. Go to your Bibles, Sarah. Chapter 22, verse 6. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height of his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. So there Saul is. He's under the tree. He's got his spear, and he's got something on his mind. What does he have on his mind? Conspiracy theories. That's what he's got on his mind. Saul is a classic example of someone whose mistrust and suspicion has shaped the way he sees the world. He himself is a conspirator, so he can only imagine that everyone else is conspiring against him. Because the moment he hears of David's whereabouts, what does he do? Well, he accuses his own inner circle, right? Explodes on them. I mean, these are people from his own tribe, fellow Benjamites, right? And look what he says in verse 7. He just explodes. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin. Will the Notice he doesn't even use David's name here. Maybe David's name just makes him twitch, right? He calls him the son of Jesse, right? Son of Jesse will give you... And notice what he does here. He appeals right to their greed, he says, look, if, if this guy's king, remember, you, you, you guys are Benjamites, pulls, a, pulls the, the ethnicity card in a sense, the tribal card at least, and he says, look, you know, he, this, this other king, the son of Jesse, he's from Judah, don't forget, us Benjamites. So if this guy becomes king, do you really think he's going to give you all the influence and the power and, and the wealth? No, it's me. It's quite a pathetic little display here. So look what he says. Notice, and it's also to the servants who stood, here now the people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse... Give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. I mean, it's interesting. Notice again, he, he, he appeals to their greed. He, he doesn't even use the name of David. Uh, he's, he's, what is he? If you look there, he's gripped with self-pity and fear, right? He, he will only feel comfortable if people are feeling sorry for him. Did you boys ever consider my feelings? I mean, maybe my feelings have been hurt in this, that my son was aiding and abetting this guy. You can just picture the scene there under the tree. You almost sort of feel bad for Saul's men to a point, right? And what are they supposed to do? He's just laying into them, right? Giving them a tongue lashing. Have you ever witnessed a coach grilling his team after they've lost some key game? Maybe in the locker room or maybe you've seen it in a movie or whatever. You know, the team sort of heads down, head, you know, tails between their legs and the coach is just spitting chips, right? That's kind of how I picture this scene. They're just standing there in awkward silence as the king is sort of blown up, blew his lid again in another one of these fits. And then suddenly, as everyone's sort of quiet and awkward, Dodgy Doag is the one who interrupts the silence. 
Dodgy Doag finally speaks up, and he takes this opportunity to ingratiate himself, kind of like a political opportunist. He, he takes this opportunity to earn some brownie points with the king, and he, says this to, he has this to say in verse 9, look, when I was gathering some intel, look at what he says in verse 9. Verse 9, Then Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, is what he says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, it's interesting there. Part of that's true. One bit, though, that I, I wonder if he added that in. We, if you remember back to last week, he didn't... Ahimelech did not inquire of the Lord for David. He might have, but it's, we, don't, we don't know that for a fact. He might just be adding that little sprinkle in there just to sort of get Saul more riled up and says, you, you know, you can trust me. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. And so what happens? Saul summons the priest, accuses him of treason, and, and despite Ahimelech's declaration of innocence, and I think he does a really good job saying, I mean, is this the first time that I've inquired? This is, 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 I mean, this is your own son-in-law, Saul. I mean, how was I supposed to know that you, that you guys were at odds with each other? Besides all that, Saul still says, you shall surely die, right? Sentences him to death. Now, here's what's interesting. In the rest of 22, what does he he's do? He, he turns to his bodyguards and he says, kill him, right? And kill the 85 priests. And the bodyguards go, well, I'm not doing that. They know this whole thing is a kangaroo court, right, that he's created. This whole thing's unjust. And the king, what's the king supposed to be doing in Israel? Protecting justice, not perverting it. So they're not going to do it. One guy, though, steps into the fray. He doesn't flinch. He's a foreigner anyway. What does he care about the clergy? He'll take his sword and slaughter every single one of them. And then he'll take it upon himself to slaughter the entire village of Nob. That's Doeg. But there's one guy that escapes. It's actually the son of Ahimelech. And where does he flee to? The shepherd king, where there's safety. And then we see yet again that Saul is seeking out the life of David 24-7. It'd be fair to say that Saul has really no other purpose for his existence other than the elimination of David. That's how he's going to spend the balance of his life. And while he's preoccupied with hunting David down, what happens? He drops his guard, really. He leaves small and vulnerable and isolated villages like Keilah unprotected because he's so fixated on David. So the Philistines, they set their sights on this little village, this town, really, that's vulnerable and unprotected, and they go, this is a great time, let's swoop in. Now, why Keilah? What, what is this town? Well, it would, in chapter 23, if you go there, that's what the Philistines notice in, in chapter 23, verse 1, now, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Now, what, what, what's, what's that? 
Well, this spot was desirable for the Philistines because it was only 19 Ks just east of Gath. Remember Gath is, that was last week, remember one of their main, the Philistines had five sort of capital cities, Gath being one of them. It's only 19 Ks, which means it's attractive, it's vulnerable, particularly in early summer when you could raid, notice the threshing floors, that's the food storages, and make off with the grain. That's exactly what they're doing, which is not only unfair, right? Keyless farmers did all the hard work, and then these guys come and pinch the goodies. It's also life-threatening, though. No grain means no bread, which means no food, and you don't have freezers back then. You don't have Aldi. You die. So David, as we remember, is a considerable distance away. And he hears about this through the grapevine. And you know what he could have said? Not my problem. Why don't you go ask your king? Isn't that supposed to be his job? And he'd be right to say that. It is the king's job to protect the people. But David is acting more and more like Israel's true king, while Saul is acting less and less, right? And so David's king. He, he, he's happy to say, you know what? Let's run to the rescue. But his men aren't so sure. Look at verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Remember, remember the guys David's with? These are not necessarily like the SAS fighters, right? These are bogans. People that don't wear shoes anywhere. And so, what's going on here? Well, they said, look, look, hold on a tick, David. <laughs> We're scared enough where we are without getting into it with the Philistines. I mean, if we go attack these guys, they, they outnumber us in, in, in technology. They outnumber us like literally man to man. I, I don't know about that. So David says, okay, fair enough. I've inquired of the Lord. I'll go back once more. So he hears their concerns and he look what he does. He goes back to the Lord a second time. Verse 4, Then David inquired the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. So evidently, the promise of divine help was enough assurance they need. So they, what do they do? They go charge. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, this is all fine and dandy, right? Yay, good, good job, boys. But how was it that the Lord spoke to David? Like, how, how does that work? Well, verse 6 adds a little note there, like almost like if you just put your, like, a note off inside of your Bible that says FYI, right? There's a little, this is not a throwaway line here. Verse 6, notice, <coughs> helps us understand when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, you should hear bells ringing there. This is how Keilah was saved. 
And this is ultimately how David and his men were saved. It's because David received a guiding hand. Sure. Now, now, now put, your, put yourself in David's shoes for a moment here, okay? Put yourself in David's shoes. Sure, you saved Kila. They're not going to, you know, but the excitement's not going to last, by the way. That's what we'll see in a second here. But you know that there's not a whole lot of time to celebrate because you know sooner than later, Saul is going to hear of your whereabouts and he's going to marshal his troops and that's exactly what happens. So what should you do? What you need is guidance, right? What should I do in this situation? And thankfully, he's got the man for the job. Don't miss God's guiding hand here in verse 7. Now it was told that Saul, that, that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Isn't that just interesting? Isn't it just amazing? You know, you can become so, I've never seen this, but sin is so insidious and it so can uh, contaminate the way that you think that, that you actually, th- he's so lost the plot here. He actually thinks that God is providentially working in such a way so where he can go strike down the Lord's anointed. It's like you, you see that and you go, what, 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 you've lost it, dude. And that's what sin can so contaminate the way that we think. It can so blind you to where you become the victim. You think that God is always trying to work for you, for your good, even though you're in sin. And so it's just amazing. And Saul, verse 8, summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. Now notice, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Now, the, notice, notice here, this is, David knew this was going to happen. It's not a surprise. He's in a difficult situation. Would you say that, right? I mean, he knows that Saul's coming with, he says that massive troops, right? He's, this is, David's got, I mean, he's had a 50% increase from last week. He's got 600 men, but 600 men against thousands, this is not 300, you know, this is not Leonidas. You know, they, he's, he's, this is, they're going to come and just like, you know, moths to a flame. Just and, and they know, that's why the guys were scared to go to Keilah because they can easily, easily be surrounded and cut off in this town. So, so David hears, uh-oh, this isn't good. I'm in a difficult situation. I'm in, I'm in a trial, so to speak. What should he do? Bring the priest. That's the first thing I need to do. Bring the priest I need to inquire of God. Isn't that what we ought to be doing? Not, oh, you know, uh, let me figure this out on my own. Uh, give me some time to, to, to sleep on it, to think about it. No, no, no. When we encounter a difficult or stressful situation, dear friend, we ought to be going to God's word. Give me instruction. Give me leading. I need your direction. See, Christians who diligently consult God's word will be delivered from great sin. Christians who diligently seek God's guidance through God's word will be delivered from danger and harm. That's why Paul says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against the Lord. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 
whom God has purchased. Therefore, whoever sins, sins not against only his body, but sins against God. Where are you going to get that information? Because the pastor said it, it's right there in the Bible. So, you see, we need to go to God to say, I need guidance. I need to understand this situation. And the Lord, the Word of God, will always, always guide you. It may not be what you want to hear, but it will always give you clarity, particularly on moral issues, every single time. It's not going to be vague. It's clear. This is the manual on how men are to behave from the manufacturer, you see? It's clear as day. So we go like David and we say, I need guidance. I don't know what to do in this situation. We go to God's word. I mean, think about it. This is Israel's greatest military hero. This is the dude that struck down Goliath but he would not make any military move. He would make no military move without God's guidance. Isn't that striking? Notice here, verse 10, Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now, on the one hand, this seems pretty flaky, right? Like when I first read that, I went, come on, you're welcome. I mean, he just saved you. Nevertheless, if they have heard what Saul's recently done to his own people, to the citizens at Nob, for supposedly supporting David, in all likelihood, they feared that they'd meet the same fate. So you can picture, you know, they have a big council and they say, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do? Well, we don't all want to die, do we? And so they're going to give up David. Notice verse 13. But notice what happens. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Now, this is a key passage here. Verse 14 and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zuf, and Saul sought him every day. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, beyond a nice, that's a nice summary statement, by the way, of like the next several chapters. But beyond a nice summary statement about David's wilderness experience, and God's protection of him? Did you catch the massive contrast here when you think big, big, bigger beyond this verse and, and think about what's happened so far? And if you've read ahead, you know what's going to happen. Think of the contrast between David and Saul, right? David seeks and receives divine guidance, which brings victory. Saul relies totally on human messages and intel and his own instincts, which brings frustration and failure. You see? See the need for a guiding hand? Now, how about a helping hand? A helping hand. That's in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. 
David saw, notice that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Zuf at Horash. He's constantly under threat. Again, I've, I said this before, we, we, we hear that and we go, yeah, yeah, that's, we, we, we've read that before. I don't think anybody in this room, in fact, I'd be willing to bet my bottom dollar, no one in this room has lived that before. <laughs> Unless there's a missionary here from AIM that I'm, I'm not aware of that has had that experience. None of us, none of us, you know, we freak out if we don't get a car park or if we get sunburned or whatever. But David is constantly under threat for his life. And he's not on holiday, by the way. He's not on the, he's not on the Disney cruise, right? He, he's, he's in Horesh. I mean, that just doesn't even sound good. He's not on holiday. He, he's, and he's got a bunch of really rough dudes with him as well moving from place to place, from hot cave to hot cave. And maybe you can imagine David waking up in one of those hot caves, one day rubbing his eyes. He looks out of the cave. He's got his, his boys there. He rubs his eyes and he thinks, how did I get myself into this mess? It seemed like when Samuel came and anointed me that life was filled with such promise. But this has just been one disaster after the next. This has gone from bad to worse. It seems I've gone from out from the frying pan and into the fire. And there, and there he is in that cave, into the darkness, the light shines. His best mate, Jonathan, shows up. His faithful friend tells him what he needs to hear. Look at this helping hand in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. What an oasis Jonathan must have been in the dry wilderness to David. He put David's hand, as it were, into God's hand. How? How did he do that? by reminding him of the promises of God. Ralph Davis provides some helpful words here. He says, of course, Jonathan's presence itself would have been a great comfort and refreshment for David. Yet our personal <laughs> presence does not have the abiding encouragement that God's sure word does. We best encourage not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. That's wonderful. Friends, when a brother or sister is down, when their resources are depleted, when they're doing it tough, yes, be there for them. Yes, your presence means a lot and your ability to empathize. But non-Christians do that. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. What you need to do is remind them of the promises of God found in Scripture, the words of life 
we need to remind them to think rightly about the Lord. See, it was not only the warmth of human friendship that strengthened David, it was truth about who God is, his character. That's offering a helping hand that lasts. Verse 17, look what he says. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. See what he reminds him there? Saul's not going to get you. You're going to be king, David. Don't fear. This is exactly the type of words he needed to hear. This is a helping hand. That's the opportunity we have as believers. Is to see someone and yes, be there, be present. But point them back to scripture. Remind them of the truths of God. When I've been at my lowest, what I need the most is not someone just to sit there, though that's sometimes helpful, but I, I need to be reminded of the character of God. I need to be reminded that God is holy, perfect, without sin, and that he's not just transcendent and far away, but he's close and he's only close because of the work of Christ. That God the Father made him, the Lord Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. I need to go to the Psalms and see the character of God for his covenant people. The Lord made every single one of you in this room. He knows every thought that's passing through your minds right now. He knows every single detail that is happening at this very moment of your life. And if you're in Christ, this is what we got. <laughs> this is it. I, I, I don't, we don't want to bank on some experience or what someone felt we want to hear this book reminding us of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Friends, we, are, are we the type of Jonathans to our friends that, that they need? I would argue, I think it's difficult. It's far easier just to sort of be there for someone. But it's a lot more difficult to do what I just described and to be intentional and to open God's word and to listen well and to speak biblical truth right into that brother or sister's situation. Because we worry, oh, well, what, what, if, what if they don't like that? What, 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 what if I lose the friendship? Or what, what, what if, hey, that's, that's not what Jonathan did. Jonathan gave a true and lasting helpful hand. 
Is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? So a guiding hand, a helpful hand, and lastly, a providential hand. A providential hand. Boy, I'd love for that language to be stitched into this culture more. Providence, providence, providence. I'll circle back to that and I'll probably go on a rant on it. But for now, let's look at God's word here. Because in this next scene, in this next scene, we meet the Zephites, right? Uh, They belong to Judah, but they remained loyal to Saul, even though, do you remember, where's David from? The line of what? Judah, right? So even though they're from his clan, look at verse 19. They want to ingratiate themselves to Saul. Then the Zophites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? Sellouts, <laughs> right? Uh, they hope to profit in some way from this um, by betraying David. And Saul was delighted, right? Saul goes, oh, may the Lord bless you for that. You know, but, but then it's interesting, Saul has sort of been on this wild goose chase before and he's come up dry, right? So he doesn't want to do that again. So he says, can you guys just double check? And once you pinpoint his exact location, then let me know and then I'll come. So if you drop down to verse 25, that's exactly what happens. And now the heat begins to turn up. And Saul and his men went to seek David and was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. You see that? He's getting closer. Every verse here, you can just, I want you to feel the heat turning up. The music's getting more dramatic. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. Can you feel it? Saul Saul and his men are closing in. And in the next verse, they're on the opposite side of this hill. That's how close they are. Saul is, is circling in. He's tightening the noose. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul heard this. He pursued after David. Notice verse 26. Saul on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Uh-oh, it's getting, you know, it's like that. It's like, you feel like it's a movie, right? You, and you're, we're watching from like, you know, a drone, so to speak. And you can see, you can see these guys on both sides. It's like, uh-oh. And then maybe Saul said, all right, you, you boys go around that side. It, it's, it's so close now. Remember the Lord of the Rings when um, uh, Galatriel, she goes, so close now, so close. All Frodo needs to do is reach out, grab the ring. It's so close now. That, that's, how, that's the way I, I figured it. it. It is so, we're on a knife's edge now, right? And, and notice, Saul went on one side of the mountain and mobile phones were ringing. It was super awesome. It didn't kill the momentum at all, but... God knew I needed that right then. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David, his men came to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Oh, lucky. What a lucky guy right? I mean, that is just, what's going on there? No, no. No, 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 no. Just when you think, right? You're watching this, 
And, and you almost want to close your eyes because what do you picture? You're, you're going, we don't want to see David caught, right? We've been just kind of with him on this journey. We don't want to see him killed. But just when this whole thing is going to end, somebody comes out of left field and says, Saul, and you kind of see the men, someone's yelling, there's a lot of yelling going on, what's going on? You need to come now, come on, let's go. The Philistines have attacked us. Right at that moment, right? That's when the messenger comes. And Saul reluctantly, no doubt, and temporarily had to abandon his vendetta against David. National interests had to be the priority here. Now, was this just good luck? Was this just, you know, I suppose you could read it that way and talk about how David should thank his lucky stars. I'd argue this is a providential hand of God. David certainly saw it that way. So much that even, read, look, look what he did here in verse 28, he named the location. David went to the Philistines, therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape, or, or the Rock of Division there, if you look at the footnote. Rock of Escape, Rock of Division, where God divided David and Saul providentially. It's a suitable name for an unforgettable place. And then David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Again, how are we to read this? Are we supposed to... You don't see God's hand, you know, coming in. But what do you see? God orchestrating all these events. God providentially moving in every single one of these events for his good, for his glory, for David's protection. God's providence is the key. God's provision. God's providence to his servants. When you're on the run, so to speak, when trials are hitting you left, right, and center, the best thing you need is at that moment is a good understanding of God's providence. Otherwise, you're going to be tempted to say, well, where is God? Exactly where he's always been, sovereignly ruling over history, doing all things for his good and for your glory, for his glory, for your good, sorry. You know, there's a... An, there's an emblem that I, I constantly go back to in my mind. I wish I had a picture of it. I don't. But it's one of my favorite Bible teachers, pastors of all time. Lived over 500 years ago in Geneva, Switzerland. His name's John Calvin. And he has this beautiful emblem. Right? Now, some of you, all you know about Calvin is, isn't that the God that invented predestination? No, Paul did and people before him, but anyway. But Calvin's got this beautiful emblem of a, of a hand holding up a heart, and it says this, promptly and sincerely I offer my heart up to you, O God. Promptly and sincerely I offer my heart up to you, O God. Calvin lost his baby to tuberculosis. He lost his wife. He regularly had people trying to kill him, 
People in Geneva used to fling mud on him. He suffered from gallbladder. He suffered from sickness. He was hated by the Roman Catholic Church. He was hated by people in Geneva. People still don't like him. And he says, promptly and sincerely, I offer my heart up to you, O God. How do you get there? How do you do that? You can't just roll up your sleeves. You have to see God's providential hand in the pages of Scripture and His hand on your life and trust that. Prompt So that, look, if tomorrow you get a diagnosis that you have cancer or that your wife has cancer or that if your kid dies or if something awful happens to you, what are you going to do? Don't turn to Jeremiah 29, 11. Promptly and sincerely, I offer my heart up to you, O God. Trust the character of God. He is sovereign over every aspect of your life. It, I'm telling you, I, I, look, there's a lot of, I've, I've got, I'm a rat bag, okay? I'm a ethnocentric, hedonistic punk. Okay? Honestly. And I could give you more descriptors, but we'll just leave it for there for now. And there has been so many scenarios in my life where I go, what on earth? Lord, what are you doing? I don't get this. And I have this image coming back to my head again and again that I think encapsulates what we're seeing in this text. Promptly and sincerely, I offer my heart up to you, O God. It, it's just this helpful, yes, I go to scripture, yes, all that stuff, but there's just something about that image that just sticks. Something about pictures that stick. Pictures worth a thousand words, right? And just to encourage you, friend, you can Google it on your phone afterwards. Whatever image might help you think, okay, how can I trust in the providence of God? And let me say this. This is my rant here, okay? If you're a Christian, you don't say, ah, oh, it's a bit lucky. You don't talk that way. That's how this society talks. Drives me bonkers every time I hear it. Yeah, he's a bit lucky. Oh, okay, well, good luck then. No, no, no. That means that everything's by chance, happening in the right place at the right time. Hey, maybe you struck lotto last night, huh? Huh? 50 million or 100 million bucks, whatever. Maybe you didn't, but good luck. No, no, no. God is the king. He is the one. Get that word. If I could inject a word into this culture, it would be providence. My country has a stacks of issues, but because they're built on a Judeo-Christian society, you hear providence, Rhode Island, providence here, providence. Why? Because they understood, at least foundationally, who God is. They were reformed. 
They understood promptly and sincerely offer my heart up to you, O God. Many of the people that were influenced by Geneva came over to America, you see? And then here's the thing. Again, this is my rant, so this gets dangerous. Uh, you know, no notes here. There's the thing. Human beings try to make sense of, of life, of search, good and bad, right? And secular Aussies have no other framework or anything to pull from, so they say, ah, it must be lucky or bad luck. Is that it? I'm not, I'm, look, are you happy with that? I'm not happy with that. We have something so much greater, something so foundational, solid, unbreakable, a sovereign God who ordains all that comes to pass because of God's providence. So as a Christian, dear friend, as a Christian, again, don't get legalistic about this. There's no way that you should be saying things like, oh, yeah, lucky. In fact, if you do, catch yourself and say, well, why am I saying that? Why am I saying that? You're saying it because you've heard it and then it's rubbed off on you and then you're just become part of your vocabulary. But I'm, I'm arguing that there's a better way. And don't be annoying about it. You know? I, uh, there, there's someone here that I, I, won't, I won't embarrass him, but when I was on holiday, he said, oh, man, lucky. I, I was staying at a cool spot in Aladala. And he said, oh, lucky. And I said, no, providence. You know, don't be annoying like that, right? <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. You get what I'm saying? But it's for your own, the, your own way of thinking to interpret the world around you. God providentially governing all things for his good, for his glory. The hand of God. Guiding, helping, governing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your hand, Lord, for your spirit moving as your word is taught. We pray that this would not just be another talk that people hear and go, that's nice, but Lord, the truths that were preached today, may they sink deep into our hearts, to our minds, to the way that we talk, to the way that we treat our spouses, to the way that we live to the way that we trust you. Lord, Lord, help those give traction to these truths, we ask. We need your mercy and your grace to do this. In Christ's name, amen. So friend, if you are here and you are